We are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. We've been here now for a considerable amount of time. I don't know exactly what date it was that we started, but it's certainly been well over a year ago, <laughs> probably more like two years that we've been in this book. Basically, we've been going chapter by chapter. I've increased the size of the text that we're covering in these last few weeks because there's a sense in which some of it's repetitive because Paul speaks, and he speaks a lot about a lot of the same things in a number of different points. Uh, but we're picking up in Acts chapter 25, verse 13 this morning, and we're reading through 2632. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left in prison by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered him or them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead by whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss uh, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, he and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after he had examined him, we have examined him, I have, uh, may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my uh, defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers 
to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury uh, against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul tells of his, con uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when I had all, they had, we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to, point you as a, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen uh, me and to those uh, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among the, those who uh, are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I am not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus when in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You great, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking truth and rational words for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice but this has not been done in a corner King Agrippa do you believe that uh, the prophets I know that you believe and Agrippa said to Paul in a short time will you persuade me to be a Christian and Paul said whether short or long I, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn they said to one another this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment and Agrippa said to Festus this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Uh, we know that this is Paul's final defense, which he's done a number of times in Scripture. 
uh, and to some degree it's a little bit repetitive. Uh, so I'm not going to go into the kind of detail that I have in the past few weeks in regard to the other passages that overlap this. But so far what has gone on here is Paul first appeared before Claudius Lysias, uh, the commander of the Roman cohort, testified uh, to the truth of the gospel there, and there was a Jewish mob that was there witnessing that testimony, very contrary to Paul. He stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin and presented basically the same argument to them. He stood before the Roman governor Felix, in Caesarea and presented the same argument to him. He stood before the Roman governor Festus, who was uh, Felix's replacement a number of years down the road. And now he's brought before the Jewish king Agrippa and his sister Bernice to say basically the same thing. Even though it was contrary to the will of the Jews, nothing has been brought and held against Paul at this point. Four trials, not enough. And we understand the reason this is going on is because the end result of every one of them has not been what the Jewish people as a whole wanted or what the Sanhedrin, the leaders, wanted. Can you imagine being tried for the same thing over and over again? <laughs> and the reason it continues is simply because the particular court hasn't come to the conclusion that certain people want it to. That's exactly what is going on here. Just as the Jewish leaders had uh, pushed that Jesus be executed, they're now continuing to do the same thing in regard to Paul, pushing the Romans to do their dirty work for them. Unfortunately, for as far as they were concerned, under Roman rule, they lacked the authority to execute anyone. If it wasn't for that, we know that Paul would have been executed well before this. The Roman law, in fact, is what is protecting Paul at this point. In particular, because he is a Roman citizen. And Roman, as a Roman citizen, he had the right to provocation. In other words, he could go through the court system and get all the way through it. But he had the right to make an appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. Every Roman citizen had that right. And so Paul invokes that right. And we know this. We know that early on in, in, in these particular passages that we've been talking about over the last several weeks... That Jesus had appeared to Paul, and what did he tell Paul? He said, you have to go to Rome. You're going to Rome. So we can see here that in a sense, perhaps at least partly what is going on here is Paul is using the system to, to, to do what God has called him to do. His way of getting himself to Rome, as Jesus told him he had to go there. He also told him that he was going to die there. And 
This goes to show you the measure, the passion that the Apostle Paul has for Christ and for his gospel. It would be hard to find a leader of Israel in this era of history that would be considered even a moral person, much less a good leader. They had none. They were monarchs who were in it for themselves, whatever benefit they could get, however much wealth they could acquire. They had no concern for the Jewish people at all. Herod Agrippa II, the Jewish king that is now, he's just a figurehead. We need to understand this. He had no real authority. He had no real power. The Romans allowed him to be where he was. They entered into the picture with great pomp. Now, you and I probably don't use that. Have you ever used that word in your whole lifetime? I'm not sure I have, but we know what it means. It's like fanfare, you know, just, you know to, to, to demonstrate, you know, they were received in such a way to demonstrate how, how greatly important they were to the big picture, when in reality, they were not of much importance at all. It's interesting because the Greek word here that is translated as pomp and fanfare or whatever is fantasia. That's how you pronounce it. In other words, fantasy. That these two monarchs were evident, were basically living in a fantasy that was not reality. Thinking that they were of great importance. That they had no official authority to even decide Paul's case. The whole reason that they were brought here was for them to maybe make a recommendation of how they could be dealt with. Since the Roman conquest of Israel, the, 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 the monarchs there had been nothing but puppets on a string for a long time. But it seems that Festus was hoping that they might bring some insight into what was going on here because they were Jews. But remember, Paul was not only Jewish, he was also a Roman citizen. And we know this, that ultimately the Lord is the puppeteer that is controlling all of this. In other words, it's playing out exactly the way that the Lord had determined that it would, exactly the way the Lord wants it to. You and I may have questions about it, but it's God's work. And I think Paul, what, what makes, Paul is not timid here. Paul is bold.
It's a measure of his great confidence in his God and Lord. He knows all along that all of these people he stood before, you know, the Roman governors and all the officials of the Jews and the Sanhedrin and, and whatever, he knows that they have no control over the Lord, that the Lord controls all of them even though they're oblivious to it. And he knows this. He knows because Jesus enlightened him to this truth when he appeared to him sometime earlier and said to him, you must justify in Rome. So Paul knows this, and he's trusting in this simple truth and this, this fact that he's not going to die before he gets to Rome. Because God has work for him to do there. He knows that neither the Jews or the Romans can do anything to him that the Lord does not allow. And he trusts in that simple fact. How familiar are you with the larger and shorter catechism? you are you may know what question number seven in the shorter catechism is it's this what are the decrees of God the answer the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass everything that happens happens because the Lord God Almighty has determined and willed that it will. And there is nothing on heaven and earth that can or will change it. Paul will write, or he's probably already has written to the Ephesian church these words. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not just some things, but all things. God controls everything. With every passing moment, everything. Not just some things, not just particular things. Question 11 in the Shorter Catechism, what are God's works of providence? The answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Just like Paul, God controls the circumstances that you and I find ourselves in right now. In other words, the point at your life that you are in right now, you are there because God has orchestrated everything through your life to bring you to that point. He is in control. He's in absolute control. Always. 
in every situation, in every circumstance, even when it doesn't look that way to us. There's a sense in which God created and controls all of the circumstances we currently find ourselves in. In other words, nothing happens to us by happenstance, ever. It's Paul's understanding and belief in these principles that are enabling him to run the good race and to fight the good fight. He knows that he is where he is, right where he is, when he is where he is, because God willed that it would be true at the very beginning of time. It's not some fluke that took place. It's not that, you know, this, that, or the other. He, he, he knows that ultimately, even though people were involved in making these circumstances come about, that it was God's will that determined all of it at the very beginning of time. And he trusts everything to that simple fact. Paul understands this, that God controls all things. First and foremost, for his own glory. But also, secondly, for our ultimate good. It would be very difficult to look to, to be in Paul's shoes and think that anything good was really going on. It would be very easy for Paul almost to begin to develop the mindset, the idea that God is actually working against me in this. It certainly doesn't look like things are going well for me. One of the most amazing things about the Apostle Paul is he is able to trust even the most precious things to him to the perfect will and purpose of his Lord and Savior. He's not only, it's not that he just understands those principles to be. He understands that those principles are what are enabling him to run the good race and to fight the good fight. And that's one of the big differences between the Roman centurion, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Roman governors Felix and Festus, and King Agrippa and Bernice. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the irradiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the words of his power. If God can control everything that's going on in the universe, don't you think he can manage our life a little? At least okay? At least a mediocre job, you think? If Paul can stand firmly in God's corner, given the circumstances he finds himself in, can we not stand 
firm in our own circumstances. From a, from a human, a merely human perspective, Paul's circumstances look dire. He's like it, you know, most people believe he's finally at the very end of his rope, and, you, and, you, and probably Paul, if it weren't for this defining principle, that he understood that God was in control, and Jesus told him he was going to Rome, then he might look upon things a little bit differently than he does. But Paul has this ability to trust the very most precious things to him into the hands of his Lord and Savior. How would you and I be reacting if we were in this position? I know this at least would go through my head. I, at least some of the times I'd be going, Lord, what in the world are you doing? There can't be anything good coming out of this. What are you accomplishing by allowing this kind of stuff to go on? But see, this is one of the differences between Keith and Paul, and that is Paul has a real trust in God that goes to the very core of who he is. Even if it means his life. Having the understanding that he has that God is in control of everything makes him fearless. He knows he's got nothing to fear. You know, we don't have the, the details in Scripture of Paul's eventual execution, trial and execution in Rome. We, you know, we Book of Acts drops off before it carries us to Rome. So we don't know all the details. We know some things that are revealed by Paul through the, his letter to the Romans and letter to so on. But 2 Timothy evidently was written by Paul in Rome not very long before his execution. That epistle gives us a little insight into the man Paul. In chapter 4, we read these words, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. In other words, he knows now that his execution, and this many years later, that his execution is imminent. Make every effort to come to me soon. Only Luke is with me. In other words, all of those who were close to him have basically abandoned him at this point. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. In these words, my first, at my first offense, no one supported me but all deserted me. In other words, those people that he had loved and he had ministered with and to, through all of this, 
who walked the course with him, that as he got right near the end of the course, obviously, probably for fear of maybe something bad happening to them, They all deserted me. And what he says then is this. Is may it not be counted against them. We need to understand something. That ultimately it's not Paul that's on trial here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that's on trial here. That's been evident in every one of these conversations as Paul has had with these different leaders. Paul understands that. He understands that his his arrest and his trials, all five of them now, in essence, are secondary to the much bigger picture. The thing that truly is on trial here is not Paul, it is the gospel. Is it true or is it not true? Is it real or is it not real? Paul is just simply serving as God's spokesman. The church is being persecuted at that time. We know that Paul was not the only apostle who had left and had gone out into the world and who was preaching the gospel, who had also suffered as a result of it. The apostle Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In other words, the people to whom he's writing are in fear of and perhaps and possibly, probably some have already been burned at the stake simply because they would not give up their faith in Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. In other words, where does it come from? It comes from God. God's testing you. He's testing your faith. As though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Rejoice in suffering? Really? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. People suffer in this world. That's been true ever since the Garden of Eden, right? Every person suffers in this world. There's been no one who has not suffered in this world, that has lived in this world. 
Sometimes suffering overcomes people. So there's a sense in which all people suffer in a general sense. All people suffer. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the suffering that all people suffer. We're talking about the suffering that Christians suffer because of their association with Jesus Christ and his church. Persecution. And just remember this, that Paul at one time was perhaps the greatest persecutor of the church. This is what Paul says about his part in it. He said, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Paul would likely have been voted to be the premier persecutor of the early New Testament church. He stood out above everybody else. The first conversion. This conversion changed everything. Not just some things, not just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It changed everything. It flip-flopped his understanding of virtually everything. Paul understands that he deserves to suffer for the simple fact that he had persecuted Christians. But he also understands something else. That at his conversion, that even his most heinous crimes are absolutely and completely forgotten and forgiven. I wish I could stand here this morning and tell you that you will never, ever in your whole lifetime suffer again in any way, shape, or form because you place your hope and faith in Christ. But that's not the message. The message ultimately is, in fact, you will suffer in ways. It's almost promised. But the big difference is this. Is that suffering for a believer is always for the believer's good. It's suffering not that God puts upon us just because he wants to see what we're going to do or punish us a little bit for something we did or something like that. Every jot and tittle of everything that happens in our life is according to God's perfect will and purpose.
even the bad stuff, even the hard stuff. Because God is our Father. And as much as we think we know what we need, we're really like little children who think they always know what they need. What is they think they know what's best and they think mom and dad have lost their mind because they won't let them do this, that, or the other. Or they make them do this, that, or the other. God our Father and our Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit love us in a way and to a magnitude that is virtually impossible for us to lay hold of hardly at all. They always know exactly what we need and they will always give it to the children. And sometimes it's going to mean us stepping into some difficult situations. But our confidence lies in this, and it's knowing certain truths. And one of those truths is this. It is just like with the Apostle Paul. God is working out every single detail that has anything to do with me at all to my eventual good. And yet, we fight. Seriously, where do you think you would have been if you were in Paul's shoes at this point? <laughs> I'm afraid to even think about where I might have been. Certainly a thought or two every now and then about why has God deserted me when I need him the most. He's left me. Why is he letting these things happen to me? See, this is the power of the gospel, and that is this. It's knowing that life is not necessarily going to be fun all the time. It's not going to necessarily feel good all the time. But can you and I have the same hope and confidence, and we should be able to, that the apostle Paul had in letting God be God, and me be me.